Welcome to Revive Ministry Podcast. We have a very special guest with us today. His name is Angel Torres, and I have known him since he spoke at one of our my uh, Revive Ministries events a few years back. He is a social worker, addiction professional, and a business owner. We will have time later on in this episode to share what, what great things Angel is doing today. But first, Angel has an inspiring story I heard before and he's going to share it with us today and the title of his of this episode is called road to redemption welcome angel and thank you for agreeing to be a guest with us today uh thank you for inviting me rob and i hope everybody's taking care of themselves during this uh health crisis yeah and um i hope they enjoy the show today yeah so i always like starting each episode with a quote and um I kind of set the tone. Uh, this quote reads, it says, healing may not be so much about getting better as about letting go of everything that isn't you, all the expectations, all the beliefs, and becoming who you are. This is from Rachel Naomi Remen. This quote means a lot to me. My own story of recovery, I usually title it as knowing and being who I truly am. What does this quote say to you and your story briefly of recovery. Well, you know, as a kid who was growing up in Bushwick, Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, and without a father to to serve as a role model. Yes. You know, I ended up choosing role models that I assumed that because of the poverty level in my household, because of the people that I had in my life, that this was who I was slated to be. And the choices were were very sparse. And so, you know, as the years went on, I ended up uh, realizing that, you know what, I had other options in my life and that my initial initial beliefs were actually false. Yes. It's interesting because, you know, I was going to touch on a little bit later was that, you know, when I started my recovery, when I realized I needed help, um, there was a lot of lies that were deep-seated within myself. You know, one of the lies that I used to say, whenever my life is about to begin, it gets taken away. You know what I mean? Um, you know, that kind of lie kind of subjects me to be, you know, kind of have that kind of, I don't want to feel anything. I want to numb things because anytime things look like they're going to be good, I, I, I live with my choices, making them out of fear. You know, you're talking about living in poverty. I know, you know, being in that area, you know, I didn't live in New York, New York City per se, but I had a lot of family there, you know, Queens and other parts, you know, Bronx and Staten Island and stuff that I, I just remember certain areas, you know, were not savory, you know, obviously they kind of call them red line districts. And for, for a long time, those people, you know, they say, if only I could get this, then I'll be happy. You know that whole concept. If only if I got this, I, I I will be happy. But honestly, that continues to shift, and you can never you never really get happy because you're always chasing something that you really, like it says in the quote, you it's 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 letting go of everything that isn't you. You know, finding who you are and all the expectations and beliefs. Because honestly, we live a lot of lies. You know, the lie that I remember reading in a book was that I'm only valued if I don't make mistakes 
How realistic is that? It's not. I'm only valued if I'm 100% all the time. It's unrealistic. But at the same time, it's that growth and recovery. And I just want to ask you, what are the few lies you believed in your own story? I know that you shared, you know, um, a little bit, but that prevented you from moving forward in your um, road to redemption. Well, I always doubted my own intellectual ability. Mm. Uh, you know, I never really imagined myself uh, going to college, uh, doing well. You know, when I was in high school, I was cutting a lot. My yeah. grades were, you know, barely passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I never thought that uh, I could really develop any major skills where I would earn a good living. I figured I would I would end up like my father, working in a factory for yeah. most of my life. Yeah. And, you know, I never really thought I was good for anything. Yeah. Except being bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny kind of what we kind of put those bars so low in our lives. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, we have to have a realistic view of our current situation. But at the same time, um, there's this one quote I always, I use even on my website. May our choices reflect our hopes, not our fears. I remember, you know, going through trauma therapy. And one of the things my therapist told me, he said, whatever toxic thought you might have, even if it's true of someone doing something or thinking something of you, you have to let that stuff go. It's not gonna help. It doesn't matter at this point. I mean, and it fundamentally helped me kind of see that, you know, you're ne- the lie that you're you're never gonna make everyone happy. You're not, at the end of the day, who are you, who's gonna live your life is yourself. You know, everyone's gonna have a say but ultimately when you make that decision when you start to find value in yourself and want to shift to should and have to do these things you know in recovery there's like i should not pick up a drink i should not um go to this or i'll get caught up in substances or whatever it may be right yeah if you should or have to into i want to that's a beautiful thing. When you shift that to, I want to do something positive. I want to do something good. You know, it's like I go to, you know, I see that a lot because the should and have to, the kind of list that you go by that you're trying to do, and that's good. That's appropriate, especially in beginning recovery. But later down the line, that you find meaning in your life, you find what you what your why is, then that shifts to what you want in your life. You know, I guess that's what I'm trying to point out. Well, you know what? I don't really think that anybody inherently wants to make bad choices. No. I think that they feel that due to the environment in which in re- which they're raised in yeah. and, you know, the influences that they have, you know, they feel like kind of they're boxed in, especially yeah. when, you know, you look at TV, you look at the media, you look at people in the area, and you don't really have these positive, positive role models to emulate or reflect on. And so you figure these are the only choices that you have based upon what you have at that particular point in time. Yeah. And, and you know, being, you know, being raised in a single parent home and my mother raising four boys, you know, she, she was a great role model, but yeah. she was working all of the time. Yeah. So my influences were the street. Yeah. yeah. And, and so when- what happens is it wasn't that I chose to to become this or become that 
I just felt that, oh, this is the road that life has given me. I didn't, I didn't really understand yeah. that I had an option, that yeah. I had a choice. Yeah, I guess what I was, uh, I was, I was not referring to um, actually the choice of you diving into that that lifestyle. I was just saying when you're going to recovery, when you get that choice, and when you want to get better, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you're kind of like shifting from should and have to because you don't want to do go back to substances you know what i mean but when you shift and you have some sort of focus you some sort of why later down in the recovery it's a beautiful thing when you say you want to do this when oh, things yeah. shift things recovery shift. has to be goal oriented exactly it has to be goal oriented and one of the things that you got to work on because you mentioned trauma mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but you know in, in order for recovery to really work, mm-hmm. you have to really want it. Yes. And that and that has to become the primary goal. And yeah. you have to make the, the willing sacrifices to obtain that recovery. You know, recovery isn't in that you just go to a program, you sit through groups and individual sessions. We already know that a relapse occurs at a very high rate, especially after completing treatment. Yes. What makes it sustainable? The fact that you want it. This is something that has to be come with from within you, right? Where you say, I'm really tired of being sick and tired. Yes. And I want a different life. And no matter what I have to do, whether I have to sacrifice family and associates, whether I have to move, whether I have to, you know, do things outside of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. to to establish a plan of recovery for myself and sustain it then that's what i have to do but you got to be hungry it always reminds me of the song uh eye of the tiger yeah. you know you yeah. you know yeah. you know and rocky you know how rocky wanted it so bad to be a champion that he ultimately did it well guess what same thing in recovery in order for you to really succeed at recovery you have to want it and but the thing is that with recovery right? Mm-hmm. It's a daily reminder that you have to continue to remind yourself that you want it. You cannot get comfortable and then say, I got this. Yeah, it's, 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 it's this, as, as in a lot of recovery, it's the same model because we never say in recovery that we made it, you know, and that's one of, one of the things that I, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, um, this idea that, um, you know people want have to want it you know the one thing i want to stress also is wanting it it's not wanting it to do for someone else you understand what that concept you don't do Mm -hmm. recovery for someone else whether it's your wife your girlfriend your mom your dad people in recovery understand what i mean because people are people you know if you're doing for someone else you're not really grasping the idea of recovery because you 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 have to want it for yourself because there's going to be bad days those people may say things or be insensitive given their own context and you're basing it on them it's not going to be sustainable you have to base it on yourself that you want recovery you want change in your life but obviously those people can be supports but if you're dependent on them being your focal point of the reason you're doing recovery i've seen I've seen those things not work out. No, recovery always has to be about you. This is where you really do have to be selfish. Yeah. 
You know, right. you have to think about you and only you, because the truth of the matter is, no matter how supportive their family is, yeah. and let me tell you something, they're also in recovery. Let's make that very clear. When, when you have a family that's being supportive of an individual who's going through recovery, the family is also going to, through recovery. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that sustainability about you on a personal level, dealing with your own addiction issues and maintaining your recovery, it has to be something in depth and it has to be something that you want for you, not for your child, not for your wife, not for your girl, not for your family. It has to be for you and only you. And I think that's the only time that we really have to be selfish because we have to say, this is for me. And the truth of the matter is, nobody can fight this battle but me. You know, it's interesting, you know, when I was dealing with my own you know, trauma therapy and everything, you know, I had to want it. It was not easy. Right? I had to want it because the thing was, what I told myself, even though I had to construct me and be selfish, was I didn't want the effects of what the trauma did to me and how I viewed and engaged in my relationships to bleed over to the ones closest to me. You know what I mean? It wasn't that I put it on. I knew because I know relationships as much as they're not the focal point and shouldn't be the main reason you're doing recovery they are important too. You know, the idea is that we're not islands either. You know, so relationships are funny because, you know, they are a risk, if you're really being honest. Every single person you get to know, either friend, girlfriend, family, they all are a risk because I've seen, unfortunately, people in recovery, the biggest stumbling block for them is their support. It's, oh. it's, it's a horrible thing to say, but it is the truth a lot of times. Well, you know what? It's not horrible. It's reality. Yeah. Like, you know, my mother, thank, thankful for her. My mother was very supportive. Yeah. Even through the most trying times that I put it through, my mother was there and she was a fighter and yeah. she didn't let me get away with nothing. Yes. However, my father's side of the family, that was a whole different story. I really couldn't be around them because they were either chronic alcoholics. Mm-hmm or heavy drug users. Yeah. And so what happens is, in that type of environment, I would have never succeeded. Yes. And and so, you know, what it comes down to is that I'm where I'm at today because of the supports that my mother gave me. But at the same time, she knew how to give the tough love. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, I hear, I hear people criticizing families that give individuals who are still in active use and you know they've put the family through so much that the family decided you know what we've tried everything under the sun at this point in time to help them now we have to give some tough love and we cannot enable these behaviors and then you have other family members how could you do that how can you would well, you know what you're not standing in their shoes we have to you know yeah when, yeah. when, I, when I work with people I don't sympathize because when I sympathize with people, I disempower them. Yes. When I empathize with them is that I understand your plight and I'm going to work with you and teaching you that there are options, but I'm not going to have pity on you. I'm not going to sympathize because when I do that, I disempower you. I take your power and then I start enabling you. Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, and what it is, is that 
you know, there's so many myths about addiction, you know, the disease of addiction, mm-hmm. and, you know, so many old school beliefs that, you know, we're still battling today, you know, and, the and you know, previously you mentioned about stigma. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's stigma about just about anything under the sun nowadays. Yeah, yeah it is. You know, understand? But when it comes to substance use, you know what I mean, and addiction and recovery, you know, people still cling to that old adage, oh, once an addict, always an addict. That is not true. There are a lot of successful people out in the world today who at one time had a problem battling addiction. And today they're ex- extremely successful. Yeah. Right. Yeah. However, you know, we always have to be vigilant, those of us in recovery, because as I previously stated, we can't get too comfortable and say, I got this and act like we have all the answers. Because you know what, recovery, if you don't maintain your own vigilance, it's gonna be like a banana peel. You're just waiting to sleep on it. Yeah. Well, I just wanna ask you this one. You you talked about environment and you, know, you touched on it. Environment is a huge factor in one's recovery in addiction, I found. How much has your environment played a part of your own recovery and ones you serve today as a social worker. I know you kind of shared that a little bit, but could you just kind of share a little bit more about how environment plays a part in this whole, in your own story and what you have seen yourself? Okay, so now I've been in recovery uh, 30 years, uh, over a little over 30 years, 31 years to be exact. Mm-hmm. And um, the environment in which I've been in the last 15 years, uh, especially that because you know the first was you know while, while I was incarcerated mm-hmm. uh, and that's where I started to clean up yes. but since I've been home and I've been home 15 years now uh, my environment has been really surprising for me because I'm I'm running around and working in circles that I never imagined or pictured myself engaging with and you know when i tell people my story uh surprisingly enough i've obtained a lot of support yes and a lot of support a lot of encouragement i've gotten invitations like when you invited me to do this podcast i've gotten other invitations to be a speaker and so i feel like i'm a representative of that image that people previously had and what they hope to see. And I think I give people hope that, uh, wow, it is possible. And and I think it also gives me hope, you know, for my brothers and sisters who are still struggling that, you know what, you can do this. Mm -hmm. You can do this, but you have to put the work in. You have to put the work in and you got to understand that to build that trust to work, Yes. But to break it down only takes one instance. You know, I, I like I like uh, what you're saying. You know, when, when we talk about work, you know, uh, previously, earlier on, I was talking about shifting from have to and should to want to. The best example, I would say, you know, is just like when you're in a relationship. In the beginning, you know, you're getting to know someone and then let's say you're married for 15 years let's just say that right and then i've been married 37. (laughs) (laughs) uh and then you look at the things you do for that person at 15 just arguably right 
and then you look at the things you did in the very beginning like if you if someone were to give you that list what you do now 15 years later you be like and the person's like yeah this is what you're gonna do if we're gonna be together and you're like hell no <laughs> no way but the thing is we we surprise ourselves because the thing is yeah it's work i'm not trying to minimize that but when you find value in yourself and when you're determined and focused if you have value in yourself value is huge yes it's work it's being intentional but i would say it's called this whole concept that i've been reading about it's called effortless work it's not that the work isn't hard it's just that your full focus and your drive makes it that there's no question of doing it or not doing it it's just you're gonna do it you know you see people who are working out who are trying to get fit they get to that mode and then just working out you know people are like so amazed but they found something that they value in themselves and they continue to stick with it it becomes comes a habit it comes a positive habit that they do it's a positive coping skill in their lives you know i'm not i'm just saying uh, there's always continual growth but as we said you never gonna say you made it the whole time you know what i mean never gonna say i've made it you know so I, well you know what it's like my work yeah right when i first started in this field i uh you know it was just a job yeah and then as I became more immersed in my first job, mm -hmm. my interest peaked. Yes. Then my interest ended up becoming uh, a dedication where I wanted to learn more. And then the more I learned, the more I wanted. And yeah. so, you know, I put in 10, 12 hour work days, mm -hmm. but my days go by fast because like, as you said, I'm so immersed in it that it becomes effortless you yeah. know just like my marriage 37 years you know we've had ups and downs uh -huh. right but at the end of the day you know the things that i do for my family or the things that they do for me we don't look at it as work we yeah. look at it as this is what's helping sustain our family unit say likewise that same mentality is what keeps my drive my passion for working in social work, working in addictions is because that's who I am. This is who I embody. And so when I come to the office, it's not work. It's like, you know what? This is what I have to do to, to help people, to keep the doors open so I can continue to help people. My whole premise is focusing on my community and the people that I help. So the things that I have to do doesn't even seem like work. It is. It just doesn't appear because I'm so driven. It's just a mindset thing. It is still work, but I would just want to stress this one point before we get into your story is that, you know, me doing Revive Ministries, one thing I, I, I began to realize is that um, serving people, like you serving people in your social work, serving people becomes my recovery. Helping people is my healing. Basically, that's it. Because at the end of the day, people like me and you, like, we thrive, we drive, we're driven by this. Because honestly, it keeps me honest, it keeps me engaged, because I found personally that things that I never thought I would be doing today, that before when I was in and out of Baker Axe, when I was really sick, I would never even, even contemplate that this was a thing, because we would be in our own bubbles, oh, I'm sick, but fundamentally, Helping people has been the biggest leap forward in my recovery. Believe it or not, me serving 
without a timetable how long I would do it, it becomes like we said, you get immersed in it and it becomes effortless work. It's still work, it's still hard, but the drive is there and the focus is there and the desire is there, you know, that's correct. So I'll, without further delay, Angel, will you go ahead and share with you, with us uh, your road to redemption, as the title states, with the listeners today? Well, you know, I was, you know, born in New York City, raised in Brooklyn, New York, and, um, you know, essentially when growing up, you know, things were pretty good, but, you know, my father was an alcoholic, and so unfortunately, because of the disease of alcoholism, um, domestic violence was very prevalent in my home. I mean, it was like clockwork. And, you know, on a weekly basis, there was always physical altercations in my house between my parents. And so ultimately, uh, you know, my parents, my mother left and she had four boys on her own and she struggled to raise four of us on her own. Uh, at the same time, you know, she realized that she needed an education to get forward. And so she started to study. But, you know, there were times we went to bed where we had no food for months on end. And the only meals we had was school or, you know, when the summer came, those summer lunch programs. And, you know, we had to hoard food in order to make sure we had something to eat at night, even if it was a scrap. And I think I became extremely resentful behind that and then ultimately as I became you know I started engaging hanging out with teenagers at a young age so at the age of nine I started drinking by the time I was 11 I was smoking marijuana and I had joined the gang and that kind of like set the stage um, for most of my life um you know, by the time I was 13, I was doing uh, amino nitrates, what we call poppers. And by the time I was 15, doing LSD and, you know, experimenting with pills. By the time I was 16, cocaine. By the time I was uh, 18 years old, I was sticking a needle in my arm with heroin and cocaine. And uh, during this whole period, I was still involved with my gang because that was my family. You know, whatever help I needed, they were there. You know, they gave me the support that I, you know, my mother was raising four boys and she had, she was killing herself working. But that father figure that I, that I needed, that role model that I needed, I didn't get it from anywhere else. And so I got it from, and so they became my family. And so my dedication to the gang preempted everything. It's interesting because, um, you know, one of the th thoughts I had when once I started down this recklessness, you know, I used to say because a lot of traumatic, some traumatic things happened in my life was desensitize the sensitivity. You know, if you, I stood, I held on to, to that mantra for a long time. You know, because you know it's it's weak to show feelings. You know, I did not want to show anything. So when you go down that track. You know, hearing your beginning of your story. One of the things, you know, being a group facilitator, and I know you being a social worker know, providing a safe place is huge, you know? It's basically one of the things that we kind of have to have because willingness is such a small thing that people don't look at, but sometimes willingness to get help is all we could ask for at the very critical point. Because 
the other thing we could that can happen is they won't be around anymore. They won't be here. So providing a safe place, not to say your home with your mom wasn't a safe place, but you said your the gang became her family. You know, there's a there's a thing when you're young of being belonging, you know, having that attention, even if it's bad attention. You know, I mean there's there's even studies that you ignore baby bats and neglect is a huge thing. You know, even people, you know, well, I feed the baby, I give it a house. It's not enough. We're social people. You need to engage with the kid. You need to engage with the child, whoever it is. And we try the best we can. But I was just saying that, um, you know, finding that safe place and being, you know, the toxic thought of desensitizing the sensitivity. I don't even know where I thought of that, but I held on to it throughout my late teens and through my 20s. I held on to it. Well, actually, you know, by the time I was 18, I was so desensitized to things going around me. I mean, yeah. you know, I basically grew up in the 80s and, uh, you know, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And so, I mean, you know, gang fights and homicides were occurring all around. I mean, by yeah. the time, by the time I hit 20, I had been to over 30 funerals of my <laughs> homeboys or homegirls. Yeah. So, you know, death became a part of, of our lives and but you know we all our vision was that you know what we're not gonna make we're not gonna make it past 21. I see. yeah so we gotta live as recklessly and as wild and as joyously or as happily as we defined it right because mm -hmm. guess what we're not gonna make it past this age yes no, and um... so you know, so I completely understand that thing about being desensitized because things occurred in the neighborhood that, you know, you know, the, the normal reaction would be, you know, horror, mm -hmm. you know, or, or fear. And we're like, okay, and? You know, you know what's the problem? Yeah, <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, not funny, uh, it's actually, there's a person. It's sad, uh, yeah. There's a person that, um, an 18 year old died quite recently that I know. I'm not gonna name names. Um, mm -hmm. And the, they had a lot of friends around them. And I told them, I told them, the one thing I said to uh, said them, allow yourself to feel it. Allow yourself to go through it. Do not numb it. <laughs> Do not numb it. Al and also allow your time, yourself time. Don't refuse to let anyone tell you that you should get over it. You know what I mean? let yourself process those feelings because honestly if you don't if you just push it down it's gonna creep up later on especially if you don't allow yourself to heal you know if you're just like i don't want to feel this stuff so i'm just gonna numb it you know how that could go for many different reasons i i have a story of that I'm, and i know you right. are even telling it you know so well the whole point is that you know what for years we you know we adopted especially with males this mantra that a man is not supposed to show emotion, that he's supposed to be strong at all times. Yeah. And you know what? That mantra has caused more harm than good because <laughs> later on, the emotional and the mental conflicts that, that end up developing because yeah. you're not allowed to demonstrate your emotions, because you're not allowed to show feeling, right? It's really mm -hmm. more destructive than anything else. Yeah, because you know every single group I do, one of the major complaints is they're not—they feel like they're not heard. You know, they don't feel like they're heard. 
I remember there's a, a person who was on my podcast a few weeks back. She's a social worker. She was a social worker in Rikers Island, believe it or not. And um, she said that they, she worked with the homeless people and she, the, the homeless person in New York City said, do you know what the hardest thing about being homeless is? And she was listing out all the services, you know? She's a social worker. She's like, yeah, this, this, this. He's like, no, 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 no. He said, loneliness. That was it. Loneliness. Simple thing. That's it. Very simple. And you know what? Like all human beings, it's those small things that we do that actually count. You know, we can't, you know, know, we project out there that it's these big wondrous things and really it's just the more simple things in our lives that actually bring us the contentment that we're seeking. You know, previously you brought up about things that we do to be happy. Mm -hmm. Yesterday I was with a client and I told her, she said, you know what? I just want to be happy. And I said, let me ask you something. How do you define happiness? Mm -hmm. I said, because if you actually think about it, happiness, the way we envision it is really fleeting. You know what? When we go to the kids to Disney World and we we see them having all this joy and all that, and we are having that moment with the family, and then we come back and for two, three, four days, we feel this, you know, this bubble of joy and happiness, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, when things are very settled and everybody's going about their business and everything is quiet and you're not feeling any roiling emotions in your in, in, in your heart and no, you know, no crazy thoughts in your head, you know, that sense of peace that you're, you're looking for, that's contentment. And yeah. basically, I think that us as human beings, we understand that we love those fleeting moments of happiness, but what we're really looking for is to be content. You know, um, it's interesting you say that because I, I actually um, was right. I wrote out, um, I did a, a talk down in the, the drop-in center. And one of the things I said personally, I said, I said, it's hard feeling feelings again after so many years minimizing. But I'd r- rather feel something than nothing. In the end, what will it matter if we continue to minimize things in life, normalizing to grow thick skin to preserve what? And all those bridges you burned, what will it matter? Will you cherish the stuff you obtained, the titles you had, or the cars you drive? Or is it the connections we make that matter? The memories of those loved ones that we hold on to. Our connections we make are the, are what matter and will last a lifetime. The reason I have this exposure is because I'm a leader of my church. You know, you you came to my church. I go to a, uh, I go to the Palm Coast now. But the thing is, the church. You know, the, I I had exposure to a lot of people on. You know, some people who are on their deathbed, and I never heard at their last moments when they had a week left to live, when the doctors gave them bad news that they were just talking about stuff. You know what I mean? Or usually when they face the reality, they talked about the people they live that, that they love. You know, it could be places they've been, but it's always about someone who went there with them. You know what I mean? So at least my experience is that. So I found that that kind of helps me. It helps me being only 38, you know, realizing this uh, because a lot of people are chasing. You know, we are, we should be, you know, gratitude. You know, a lot of people in recovery having a thankful gratitude journal is good because gratitude in a sense creates room to heal. You know, when you're grateful for someone instead of being entitled, 
it fosters healing than another. Forgiveness versus hate is the same scenario because forgiveness allows room to heal. Doesn't matter if that person wrongs you. The only person that needs to be required for you to forgive is yourself. You know, and, you know, reconciliation is hoped for, but it's not required. You know? So I just find that that's helpful. Well, it's just like the 12 steps, making amends. You're not making amends for them. You're making amends for yourself. Exactly. So I want you to continue your story. I'm sorry for pausing. No, no, not a problem. And so what happens is ultimately, you know, my gang life ended up uh, with me getting into an altercation with somebody and uh, taking their life. Mm. Uh, This happened three weeks before because I had decided that, you know what, I was already getting tired of being sick and tired of living the life. I was thinking, I thought about going into the service, took my ASVAB, swore in, was about to leave, decided to do one last hurrah with the drugs and ended up getting into a fight where somebody lost their life. And so ultimately I got arrested, um, convicted of murder and sentenced to uh, 15 years to life in uh, New York State prison. So that didn't really change much for me because the first five years inside i was living just as recklessly inside as i was out here being in prison at such a young age uh, can diminish uh, your thoughts of um and confidence of a successful future i'm sure you're getting you're getting to that what contributed you to you moving beyond that besides the negative thoughts and the outside influences like we talked about before even our support sometimes could be the biggest support. Actually, all right, so like I was stating, I spent my first five years living the same way that I did outside. Yes. And then one day I was on my way to go work out in the yard mm-hmm. and it was like a cloudy day, but there was this ray of sunshine that <laughs> for some reason decided to stick out. Mm-hmm. It was beaming on one of the oldest guys in the yard. Yeah. And it kind of dawned on me like, if I didn't start to change my behavior, that was going to be me. Yeah. And it triggered something in me that where I turned around and I told the correction officer, uh, listen, do you have a college program here? Mm-hmm. He like, yes. I said, I need to talk to a counselor immediately because I can't do this. So, you know, the cop is looking at me like, what are you talking about? I said, <laughs> I know I have to do this sentence. But I'm not going to be like that old man out there where he spent his whole life coming in and out, in and out, in and out. And now he's here in his late 60s with so many years left to go to the board and he's going to die in here. I refuse. And so what happened is that that kind of triggered my whole journey. And I decided to get a college education because they were at that point in time, colleges were still in the prisons. And then as I started to study and, you know, take on, you know, courses like social, you know, anthropology, you know, psychology, you know, I started to read and expand my mind. And so what happened is I started to apply a lot of the things that I started to learn to myself. And then one of the things that it eventually did, because I justified everything that I did. Yes. I justified everything. Even taking that man's life, I justified it to myself. I made an excuse. I never really held myself responsible or accountable for that. Yeah. 
And once I was able to do that and break down that barrier of, you know, toughing it out and not showing emotions and, you know, just being cold, once I was able to acknowledge that you were responsible for this, Angel, you did this, nobody else, it kind of like burst open a gate. And I became very emotional and, you know, because it, I, I saw, you know, what I had become as to what God's purpose for me should have been. Yeah. And so ultimately, um, you know, through my various education uh, endeavors in prison and participation in multiple inmate run groups, uh, I kind of started to get away from all the negativity, all the gang banging in the yard, all the drug use. I immersed myself in working in the law library, you know, taking all, you know, groups at night to keep me out of the yard. And so as I started to learn and, you know, take all these groups and educate myself, I started to learn about who I was. And more importantly, remember I was telling you before, that I didn't feel that I had the educational foundation mm-hmm. to be successful. I, I started to realize just how smart I really was. Mm-hmm. That if anything, I was I was holding myself back more than anybody else. Yes. And so what I ended up doing, what I ended up doing was, um, you know, I got two associate's degrees, a bachelor's, and two master's degrees. Wow. And. Yeah. It's, so, interesting. You know, it's interesting. That right there allowed me to grow. And and believe it or not, my family became very much involved with me because they would send me books, notebooks, pens, paper, pencils, dictionaries, whatever <laughs> I wanted to continue my education, they sent me. That's that's awesome. You know, the thing is, you know, a lot of, you know, I had like in mind some questions, but one thing that just kind of stands out to me, what you're saying is one of the biggest contributing factors was you started to find value. What you, what you thought you didn't have was that you were, edu- that you could be educated, you know what I mean? That you could do something. And when you started seeing that you had that value, it kind of propelled you forward and people started seeing you differently. You start changing, like the question, like how'd you stay, how'd you, how'd you um, move forward besides these negative thoughts? It was, it was easier because there was a focus. It wasn't like day to day. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do. It. it was something that was goal oriented, like you said. You had a goal in mind, and you, you found value in yourself. And how many people I know in my groups that have very minimal value, and it's hard for them to see things because a lot of life is our perspective of it, how we view things. There's so much context of each individual, but when you shifted that context that you viewed yourself into something you valued, I see just by what you're saying, the change that was beginning to happen. Yeah, well, you know what, Rob? I really had to learn how to value my life because the truth of the matter is, up to the point, even five years after being incarcerated, yeah. I didn't appreciate my own life. Yeah. Like I didn't I, I didn't feel that I deserved anything good because I didn't understand what that was. 
Yeah. It's interesting because, like, I, you know, value in someone's self really makes a lot of things better when you when when you start to internally have that value. You talk about someone who uh, struggles with weight gain or something like that. I'm not saying there's a lot of physical part of that, but when they value themselves, they could make certain steps. You know, it's about being intentional. You can't just do this half-heartedly to do something like this because everything's telling you what you can't do, especially when you're starting to make those steps in recovery, you know, make those big steps, you know? So I, I find, I, you know, it's just really inspiring when I hear stories like this, that, you know, everything, society, everything would tell you why you can't do what you're doing right now. You know what I mean? But you had enough value in yourself and you continue to move forward. You never say, like we said, we never say we made it, but it's just continuing that process, not being comfortable, as you said, not being complacent, but continuing knowing that each day, and, and this is where gratitude comes in, and especially with my recovery, being thankful for you, what you have. You know what I mean? Being thankful, being grateful for what you have, but also looking forward to the goals you have for yourself. Well, I would say, you know what? You always got to have an attitude of gratitude. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, uh, you know what? And definitely me, because I have such an appreciation for my life today. Mm. The people in it, my family, you know, uh, the clients that I see, like basically the clients that I see, they're like my other family. Yeah, yeah. You know, because, you know, I always let them know I'm not better than you. I am what you can become. I said, and it all starts with you. You have to learn self-love. If you don't learn how to love yourself, then it's impossible for you to be able to love anybody else or love anything that you want to do. Yeah. You know, valuing yourself is such a, a, a crucial thing in recovery. Yeah. You know, and then, but then, and then you know, one of the things I tell people, you know, in, in the recovery process that your heart and your mind have to work in unison. Mm-hmm. unison. Because, you know, your heart can't be somewhere and your and your and your mind is somewhere else. Yeah. It's impossible to, for it to work. But when you have the heart and the mind working in unison, let me tell you something, it becomes such an all-powerful force that focusing on your recovery becomes much easier as the days go by. Yeah. You know, the thing is, you know, we, a lot of, even our society, they kind of feel that, you know, if you go through pain, you have to, you know, try to steer clear from pain. But sometimes I've learned from my recovery, going through the pain, not avoiding the pain has been the biggest growth. You know what I mean? I'm not saying you actively seek it out, but honestly, certain circumstances, like the old saying, you learn more from your failures than your successes. I mean, there's this growth mentality, the idea that, you know, but we live in a society that tries to avoid pain. You know, I know that I remember just just being around people that I know in my circles that, you know, when it comes to children, I don't have children myself, but I know there's this big fear that you don't want them to go through pain, but ultimately they're going to grow up, you know what I mean? And you're going to try your best to share the knowledge but ultimately you cannot you can't avoid pain you step out the door there's if you really think about it, there's all this trauma that that could happen 
someone in your family could get sick, you could get in a car accident, all these things. But life keeps going. Either even if you're doing well in good recovery, it still could rain outside. You know, whether or not you're doing well or not doing well, life still goes on. So it's really good to have that kind of solid foundation that you have value, even on those rainy days. Do you have goals? Even though, even like as we were speaking that you mentioned earlier, we have this whole thing about this social distancing. Some people are going to have a hard time. I know I'm just thinking about people, the groups that I facilitate. You know, they sometimes depend. You know, people who like now we're told not to 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 congregate in groups if if you can't. And I'm not trying to shift to that side of the conversation, but. Ultimately, the idea is, you know, we need each other as much as we try to pretend we don't. But at the same time, um, we also, like you also said, you know, we have to be, we have to have value in ourselves, but we also have to put the boundaries there that are necessary, especially those going through recovery, because healthy boundaries also set values for yourself. If you're always gonna be the one that the person has you on speed dial, yeah granted but the point of this is that everyone plays a part it can't just be you you know because i I think that's why um when it comes to recovery it's everyone's problem it's everyone's issue so um anyway i just want to ask you this one question if there's someone listening to this podcast today who has a similar story as yourself what would you say to them right now don't give up believe in yourself and if you are goal-oriented, do your research because there's so much misinformation out there mm-hmm. that people have a tendency of believing it and they don't take the opportunity to research. Yeah. You know, you know, they told me that, uh, you know, when I came home, uh, that I could never be licensed as a social worker. Yeah. Not true. Yeah. They told me that I could never be certified as a substance abuse counselor. Not true. Yeah. They told me that, you know, I would be, it would be difficult for me to get a job here in Florida. Not true. Yeah. And so what happens is that, you know, you have to believe in yourself. And one of the things is this, like right now we have a big peer recovery movement going on here in Florida. Mm -hmm. And one of the stumbling blocks is about the exemption process. Mm -hmm. And so I already have four exemptions. Mm -hmm. And so... I tell people that do your research, file for your exemption, they give you instructions on what you need to submit, work on it. Find somebody that's gone through the process to help you, you know, to to provide you with guidance on how to do an exemption, right? And you know what, it's possible you know, Florida is not as closed off as most people think. Yeah. You know what I mean? You, they're willing to give exemptions. It's how you present yourself and what you put into your packet. And so don't give up. Believe in yourself. If nothing else, believe in yourself. Don't allow yourself to be defined by somebody else. You define yourself. You know, uh it's just it, you know you're talking about do your research and i would even go even beyond that is that 
when we say you want to do you want to be in recovery you want to do this goal per se it's also wanting is just not the idea it's also being intentional when i talk about a lot of times when exactly I, you know when you're being intentional it's just like if you want something you call the person it doesn't pick up you don't just end there you know what i mean you you, you reach out in other ways you know what i mean being intentional is that that is on your priority list you know it's not that oh it didn't work out and then you just sit you have to really be intentional especially nowadays because the thing is um you know i i i went to school for business you know i have a bs in business and one of the things that i found that was really interesting when it comes to business is like you go to new york city and you know this you know why rest the food in new york city is so good because it's so competitive you cannot be moderately good to survive in new york city because there's so many other restaurants you know what i mean what 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 makes your restaurant better than mine you know what i mean it's just one of those things and the thing is they have to be extremely intentional they have to have a good product at the same time you know what i mean so it's just this idea of when you have to be intentional especially with your recovery and more so this is like what um you were saying you know if you're going to want to go ahead and get these exemptions that you were saying you need to be intentional it has to be in your thought process you have to think about it you got to eat it you got to breathe it yeah yeah and the yeah. thing is also like you said find someone who's been through and have gone through it to get some advice because it does you know going through stuff like uh, i can imagine going through stuff can be tedious but when you have a good support group when you have a good person kind of um, mentoring you you know if you're intentional enough i i dare to say that you'll find positive outcomes of, the, of your whole situation i'm not going to say guarantees because i'm not one to right i well, can't guarantee the exemption however yeah. if you present the package well and you present yourself well and you present all the necessary documentation you you have a high chance of being approved yeah, right yeah and you know and i was very intentional when i was doing my part i mean i was meticulous i was a ruthless <laughs> yeah when i was doing my first uh exemption packet yeah. and since then i've only had to update it periodically when i went for three other exemptions yeah and so what you know what it came down to is that it ultimately ultimately it benefited me because it allowed me to start my own intensive outpatient outpatient substance abuse program mm. right so now i'm the ceo and owner of that and then just recently i got together with a nonprofit and i helped them uh establish a, a mental health clinic here in in the county in which i live in mm. and we're doing the grand opening for that on april 15th and then i'm also part of developing the recovery community organization for my county and so i'm i'm very much involved in the recovery process not just from substances from mental health issues Mm-hmm. You know, because we got to also understand that you know what, if you're suffering from a substance issue, there's a very high chance that you are also have a co-occurring disorder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, you know, you you know, signs of depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder. Yeah. Uh the impact of previous traumas will have an effect on, you know, your usage of substances. And so, you know, we 
my, my attempt is to give back to the community in which I live in, you know, and help individuals who are, are suffering from these afflictions and, and, and substance use disorders. Because, you know, as I continuously tell myself, uh, I was them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was them. And the moment I forget that I was them, then I've become something else that's not going to be beneficial to anybody. Yeah. And my whole purpose of getting into this career and all that was, you know what, initially it was in to redeem myself from the great harm that I have done. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in honor of, you know, uh, the, the victim, but it's, it's, it's grown into something much more, you know, yeah. Being on this end of the spectrum, I get to see just how broken our system is, mm-hmm. and you know how we fail people, right? All in the name of the love for money, or the mm-hmm. bottom dollar, or the yeah. bottom line. Yeah. And, and so, you know, my thing is, yes, you know, I need to make a living, but yeah. I'm gonna, try, I'm trying to see if I can make it as affordable as I can. You know, uh, you know, with the clinic, with the mental health clinic, and my business. We've applied for Medicaid applications so we can serve the Medicaid population because I've noticed that down here, nobody wants to serve anybody with Medicaid. Yeah. And so my perp- my whole thing is to provide quality services for the Medicaid population, you know, suffering from the disease of addiction or, you know, co-occurring disorders with mental health issues in, in our communities and just try to be a decent human being. Yeah. You know, I spent the first 20 years of my life not being such a great human. Yeah. And I've endeavored since I've been home to to be better than what I was. Yeah. To be the person that, you know, God meant me to be. Yeah. You know, uh, I want to kind of ask this question that I ask every single person on my podcast. It's it's a question that Revive Ministry Podcast is trying to answer as a community mm-hmm. of people around the world because I don't see any borders when it comes to these kind of issues is why should we care? You know, there's people out there listening to this like, well, you know, why should we care? If you were to answer that the best you can. I know it's a tough question, but for me, and I'm sure for you, it's easy. But, you know, how, how would you respond to uh, a question like, why should we care? Regarding your story, everything we've been sharing today. Well, you know, like you know, like I said from the beginning, I'm from New York, right? So, you know, you got Long Island, Staten Island, you know, you got a, you got a crew of gangs out there of mm-hmm. kids that come from rich families. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And they all repping a blood set. Mm-hmm. And these are all kids with money. Yeah. You understand? So why should we care? Because no matter what your economic situation is or what neighborhood you're living in, right? It's prevalent in your neighborhood. Yes. And the criminal justice system isn't going to answer all of your problems. Locking them up and throwing the key away doesn't resolve the problem. Because you got to understand that 85% of the people that go to prison end up coming back home. Yeah. So if we de- if we make a determination to become part of the solution and try to respond to the needs of the people within our community, then the chances are our communities become a lot safer, yeah. right? And mind you, 
that also entails working with law enforcement. Yes. You know, I think that we are very fortunate here in Flagler. I can't speak about other counties, but we, we have a sheriff here who is extremely proactive. He is willing to help. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean he's not going to be tough when he needs to be. You know, because he, he he's our, you know, our primary law enforcement officer. And so, you know, his job is to fight crime. So if we got to slap those cops up and send you to prison or jail, that's what he's going to do. But yeah. He's also willing to work with people. You know, he's very much involved with the drug court. He's very much involved with the domestic violence, uh, can, you know, he, with the mental health, uh, you know, uh, consortium, you know. So we can't dispel the assistance that we need from law enforcement, because guess what? When we have law enforcement, the mental health and substance abuse community, right? businessmen within our communities, right? And we all work together as a community, mm-hmm. then we get to resolve a lot of the problems that, that are going down. And you know, so that's why we should care because it doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor, black, white, Latino, and substance abuse is a problem that is faced by all economic stations, all ethnic groups, and so what happens is we need to address it as a community. And that's why we, we should we should care. You know, Revive Ministry stands Revive Ministry stands on this is that um, why should we care? Because we can't afford not to. You know, the, the what uh, just hearing you just describe why should we care reminded me of um, two things. This us and them mentality. When it comes to situations and topics that we're talking about, it's not about us and them. We're all involved. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is this, you know, this is a faith-based podcast, but I do not proselyze because all I'm trying to do is really just inspire hope, you know, and to share stories and to start the healing in our community. And I will just say this, there's a story in the Bible that really, uh, really intrigues me by, by the question that the lawyer asked Jesus. It was in Luke chapter 10, I think, I believe. And it says, um, it's, a, it's called the Good Samaritan. You know, and, and he asked, uh, he's like, he asked basically paraphrasing, um, what what do I need to do to like gain, to, to get internal life? And he said, and at the end, he lists this thing. He's like, okay, you're good. Then he asked, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor is a, is a question that even if you're faith-based or not, is something we gotta ask ourselves when we talk about issues like this. Who is my neighbor? Do I help this person versus that person or not that person versus this person? I beg to differ. I say we help everyone because all of us play a part. It's not about us and them. That's why Revive Ministry stand firm in saying, why should we care? Because we can't afford not to. Thank you, Angel, for sharing your story with us today. Now I'd like to, I know you shared a little bit, but can you just share a little bit about what you're doing today again a little bit more uh, all of it will be in the notes so if you don't know like maybe the name of the the place that you do some of the things that okay you do. so my business is called abm counseling center llc i am an intensive outpatient outpatient substance abuse program mm-hmm. and we also do uh, a batteries intervention program we do anger management i do parenting class as well as run groups 
And then I'm also involved with Abundant Life Ministries Hope House. They're a nonprofit who run a group home for boys. And just recently we filed um, to do um, Abundant Life Ministries, doing business as uh, Phoenix Community Services, which is going to be a mental health clinic here in Palm Coast in Flagler mm-hmm. County, uh, because we don't have any um, mental health services up here other than yeah. independence, and especially for those that take Medicaid. So we will be doing a uh, grand opening more or less during the middle of April uh, to open up a community mental health center here. And then I'm also involved in the Flagler Open Arms Recovery Services uh, RCO. Mm-hmm. Right? We're in the stages of developing a recovery community organization, uh, which is peer-led. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just involved in a lot of things dealing with uh, either mental health or substance use. And um, one of the things I want to say, especially, you know, especially when you mentioned Revive, that um, spirituality, uh, faith-based programs are, are very integral in, in a lot of the work that we do. Uh, they're very important in re-entry programs for people coming home from prison, uh, you know, substance abuse and all that. And I'm just really happy to hear, you know, to see that lately, especially in the last few years, you know, um, some of our religious institutions are finally starting to open up and say, you know what, this is our problem too in regards to substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it kind of brings me back to uh, the crossing the switchblade mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Nikki Cruz and Dave Wilkerson. You know, when Dave Wilkerson first came, you know, to New York and, you know, and met Nikki and all that, you know, it, it kind of, it gave birth to, uh, you know, a substance abuse treatment program uh, program back then, Mm -hmm. which is still uh, in in effect today. And it goes to show you the power of, you know, that that, that the churches and our pastors and our church leaders can have in helping individuals, you know, uh, you know, change their lives, you know, uh, you know, and to quote scripture, you know, Jesus said, you know, I didn't come for this, you know, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sinner. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so what happens is, is that, you know, we could hate the action, but let's not hate the person. Exactly. And, and let's not continue, you know, like, you know, look at the beam in your own eye before you can get the beam in others. You know, yeah. judge not, and ye shall not be judged. You yeah. know, when working in these communities that they are in such dire need, you know, we have to come in there with love, compassion, empathy. Mm-hmm. Yes. And more importantly, a dedication to ensuring the survival, you know, of, of the human race. Yeah. Because the way I see things, if we continue on the road that we're going, going on mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have to worry about climate change we're going to take care of ourselves <laughs> yeah um that's a whole nother <laughs> basket of <laughs> more of yeah. But, yeah but yeah i do i do find that it, it is you know this finding these little pockets of people actually showing the intentionality of their approach you know 
shame and guilt has not helped anything in substance abuse or mental health or any of these kind of situations. It's us, you know, empathizing, not sympathizing, like we were talking about before. But, um, you know, and being able... Go ahead. And I'd like to add one more thing. I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah. Uh, And I think an important part is this, that getting these types of providers into our churches Mm -hmm. to do presentations Mm -hmm. about mental health issues and breaking down some of the myths, Mm -hmm. right, would really be a great thing because, you know, when you start dispelling a lot of the myths that people are, are stuck in, yeah, then they become more open to learning about these things and becoming involved. Yeah. You know, a lot of them stay away out of fear. Yeah. And fear, like I said in the beginning, let's make our choices out of hope, not fear. Um, Any resources you'd like to share as we wrap up? Any resources that help you along the way? Well, I think resources are, um, you have SAMHSA, Mm-hmm. If you go on samsha.gov yeah, or, or samsha.com, samsha has um, a directory for substance abuse programs. Mm-hmm. Um, you can look at your local Department of Health mm-hmm. uh, or uh, look at DCF's a website for a directory of mental health or substance abuse providers. Mm-hmm. Or you could just go on Google and, you know, mental health services near me. Mm-hmm. And it'll pop up with a listing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because all these things will be in the notes. I, I just wanted to. Right. And uh, then another plus. thing is that, you know what? Recovery is, is a very personal thing. And, you know, you just need to find a program that fits you and your needs. Exactly. Thank you again, Angel, for being a guest. Any last thoughts you'd like to just share briefly as we close off? We all have the capacity to change and we are not defined by our mistakes. Till next time, this is goodbye from Revive Ministry Podcast. Please check out our website and updates of latest episodes of the podcast at reviveministriesfl.com forward slash podcast. Thank you again, Angel, for agreeing to be on this podcast with us today and sharing your story. I would like to leave you with this one quote. I like leaving uh, ending with a quote and it says, our greatest glory is not not in never failing, but in rising up every time we fail. Mm-hmm.